when the end, when the end, Hello and welcome everybody, friends, fellow wisdom seekers, fellow truth seekers. Welcome to the Brave New World Order podcast, straight out the dungeons of podcasting. I am Brandon St. One. Thank you all so much for joining me on this journey as we continue our dive into the Gods of Eden by William Bramley. But instead of going through it chapter by chapter, I decided that I want to take what he presents in the book and how it relates to what is going on right now in the Middle East with Israel and Palestine and Hamas and Iran, how the United States is probably going to war. All of this is most likely the work of the custodians hardening the hearts and pitting everybody against one another and how it seems like the three major Abrahamic religions are on a collision course right now. If you haven't listened to the previous two parts that I did on the Gods of Eden, go back and check those out so you get a better understanding of what I'm talking about when I say the hardening of hearts. It's how these custodians make certain groups of people believe that they are God's chosen people, and they all have a doomsday prophecy, and they have a Messiah that's going to come lead them and their chosen people through this doomsday, and they will come out on top, triumphant, and be rewarded with all the things that they were promised. But first, they must absolutely destroy all of their enemies. We are going to dive into all of this, but first I want to thank everybody for coming along with me on this journey. Firewalk with me into the abyss, but real quick, we are going to start here with chapter 11, which is titled Doom Prophets. This is all about the end of the world, the day of judgment, the final battle, Armageddon. And William Bramley says that these ideas of the end times come from the Buddhist religion and how they have their savior character that's referred to as the Mataya. And this is the second Buddha or enlightened one that would arrive later in history to complete the task of freeing the human race. And as time went on, the Buddhist religion started to fade and decay. These legends were slowly absorbed into a very destructive doctrine being spread by the Brotherhood of the Snake, the doctrine of the end of the world. These doctrines serve a very specific purpose, obviously to scare people. Fearsome apocalypses give spiritual truths another false twist, and more obviously, they subdue people into obeying a specific religion or leader. End of the world doctrines also make people afraid to explore competing religious systems. Judgment Day teachings ultimately amount to extortion. Obey or die. That is a quote right out of the book. But how did these end-of-the-world teachings become so widely known and feared and practiced? Well, according to William Bramley, it started being widely disseminated in Persia somewhere between 750 BC and 550 BC by famous Persian prophet named Zoroaster, who preached monotheism similar to that that was first created by Akhenaten. And Zoroaster was most likely spreading the words of the custodians and was maybe a high priest or a high-ranking member of the Brotherhood of the Snake. And after Zoroaster's death, a lot of these apocalyptic doctrines continued to be spread especially by the Hebrew prophets. And in the Old Testament, one of those prophets was Ezekiel, whose description of a bizarre flying object that he was taken aboard and he was given an apocalyptic message to spread. 
And William Bramley believes that that is once again proof that these custodians were the ultimate creators of these Judgment Day teachings. Also, around this time, some of these Hebrew sects started coming up with this idea of the Messiah. A Messiah who would prevail in the eternal struggle of good against evil and bring freedom to the oppressed Jews. And this idea became really popular in Palestine at that time. In the Old Testament, messianic prophecies from the prophet Isaiah, as well as the prophet Joel and Daniel, the prophecies were quite dire and expressed tremendous hostility against the Jewish people themselves, even though the Hebrews were meant to ultimately benefit from the prophecies. Old Testament seers described the people of Israel as wicked and sinful. They quoted Jehovah threatening all manner of calamities against the people of Israel and against the oppressors of Israel. No one was to be spared. Here's a verse from the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. For look, the day comes that all will burn like an oven, and all the proud, and all those who act wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, said the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, and you will tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I shall do this, said the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded to him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Observe, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, so that I do not come and destroy the earth with a curse. So according to William Bramley, that passage from the Old Testament shows that the modern-day Hebrews are waiting for their Messiah, which is Elijah. He also says that Christians believe that Elijah was John the Baptist, the man who baptized Jesus Christ. And then he shows more evidence from the Old Testament that it is Jehovah or Yahweh that is the one responsible for manipulating people into war. And right here out of Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 through 2, For I, God will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations. That quote there shows that this Yahweh, Jehovah character, its intention is to bring many nations into conflict by first supporting one side and then backing the other. If this Jehovah, Yahweh, appeared to certain people like prophets, or these prophets were already working as part of the custodian group. They could spread these ideas, these apocalyptic end-of-the-world ideas, and scare people into submission. If people believe that they are the chosen people of the world, and they are going to be the ones standing alongside God in the final battle, how do you think people will behave? Very interesting and scary stuff. So I think that you're getting the point of what William Bramley is showing in the words from the Old Testament itself that shows how these custodians use these prophets to insert this end-of-the-world apocalyptic doctrine into the Hebrew Bible and have them waiting for a Messiah to this very day. So now that we explored the custodians' influence over the Hebrew religion, Let's move on to chapter 12, which is titled, The Jesus Ministry. And he starts by saying, 
around the year 1 AD, a controversial religious leader was born who tried to prevent himself from being declared an apocalyptic messiah. He was unsuccessful and would be nailed to a wooden cross as a result. We know him as Jesus Christ, and his story is a very important one. A lot of what is known about Jesus is told in the New Testament, much of which has been greatly altered, and probably less than 5% of all that Jesus and his original followers taught is found in the Bible, according to William Bramley. And I probably believe that too. Many of this has been edited out around the time of the First Council of Nicaea, around 325 AD, and it continued well into the 12th century. During the Second Synod Church Council of Constantinople in the year 553 AD, deleted from the Bible Jesus' references to reincarnation, an important concept to Jesus and his early followers. Later, the Lateran councils of the 12th century added a tenet to the Bible that was never taught by Jesus, the concept of the Holy Trinity. The Christian church did not limit itself to changing a few ideas. It also rejected entire books. And many of these books were destroyed, but a lot of them in these original writings survived the editing process and they still offer valuable clues and insights into the life of Jesus. Many of these books are known as the Apocrypha, which is the hidden writings. This is where it gets really interesting. According to the Apocrypha, the story of Jesus begins with his maternal grandparents who are unable to produce any children, and they were really embarrassed, and their names were Joachim and Anna. So they couldn't have kids, and they were really embarrassed by it. And then one day, Joachim was approached by an angel and told him not to be embarrassed anymore or ashamed because the angel would cause Anna to become pregnant under one stipulation that his wife must surrender their child to be raised by the priests and angels at a temple in Jerusalem. Soon after this pact was made, Anna became pregnant and had a little baby girl named Mary. At the age of three, Mary was taken to the temple and left there, where she was raised by these priests and angels for about the next 11 years, after which they chose a husband for her, an old man named Joseph who already had children of his own, so there was no concern for him to press her for children because their plan, the custodians, the priests, the so-called angels, was to artificially inseminate Mary with the Messiah child. And that's what happened. But not in a manger like Luke says. And we'll get into the reason why they changed it to a manger instead of this quote-unquote cave that's talked about here. little quote from Infancy chapter 1 verse 6 through 11 from the Apocrypha where it shows Mary giving birth in a cave. It was after sunset when the old woman and Joseph reached the cave. And they both went in. And look, it was all filled with lights, greater than the light of lamps and candle, and greater than the light of the sun itself. The infant was then wrapped up in swaddling clothes and sucking the breast of his mother, St. Mary. William Bramley thinks these unusual lights in the cave indicate the existence of high-tech lighting of some sort. Maybe they weren't really in a cave. Maybe they were on some kind of ship or in a high-tech hospital room of some kind. But this is significant because everybody believes Jesus was born in the manger. 
And that, according to William Bramley, is because they had to change the birth story to match the Hebrew Messiah prophecy. And they needed to prove Jesus was from the direct lineage of Hebrew King David. It was required by Hebrew prophecies. But many religious historians believe Jesus belonged to a Hebrew religious sect known as the Essenes. Joachim, Anna, and Mary were probably all members of Essene temples. The cave birth would tend to reinforce that conclusion because the Essenes were well known for using caves as shelters and hospices. So maybe it was a cave after all, but just set up like a high-tech hospital hospice type thing prepared by the custodians. Who knows? It's all very interesting, though. These are all very fascinating ideas. I love this book. I highly recommend getting a copy and reading all of it. So much detail in it. It's amazing. So the point being that if Jesus was one of these Essenes, he could not have been a descendant of King David. The Essenes were Jewish, but they also studied Zoroastrianism and reportedly practiced Arianism. This would help explain the visit of the three Persian wise men to baby Jesus in Bethlehem. William Bramley's making some bold claims right here by saying in order to be an Essene, he would have had to be Arian, which also would make Jesus himself white-skinned and red-headed. But if you read this book, the whole thing, this dude is not like a Nazi or anything. He talks about all that stuff, how there was a race of Aryans way, way, way back that spread a worldwide civilization. It doesn't really have to do with spreading hate or anything like that. The word Aryan is very, very touchy, but there is evidence of a civilization a very advanced and a very intelligent civilization that is ancient. And I want to explore these ideas a little further, and I will in some more episodes in the future. I definitely want to touch on the chapter that William Bramley talks about, this possible Aryan civilization that goes way, 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 way back and definitely taught a lot of knowledge to people that got absorbed into a lot of modern-day religions, and everything. And they were probably custodians too, so let's not forget that. Because they supposedly built some amazing shit way, way back. But yeah, I just wanted to get that out of the way. And let's keep moving on about what William Bramley has to say about the Jesus ministry and the custodial role in how Jesus became who he was. Mostly the point of him being an Essene Hebrew and also an Aryan is that he could not have been a direct descendant of King David. And like I said previously, these Essenes are a branch of the Brotherhood. According to Albert McKay's History of Freemasonry that was published in 1889, he confirms this by reporting that the Essenes had a system of degrees and used a symbolic apron. But despite a lot of strong evidence, a lot of theologians still dispute that Jesus was an Essene, and that is because a lot of Jesus' teachings contradict Essene ways, and William Bramley believes that there is an important reason for that contradiction, is that because Jesus was a renegade, and that he himself rebelled against the custodians. So let's explain how that happened based on the information that we actually have about Jesus, which is not a lot. There are a lot of gaps in his life. In both the New Testament and the Apocrypha, the life of Jesus is covered about until the age of five or six. And then abruptly, there's a complete void of information about where Jesus went or what he did. And then in the New Testament, one episode of Jesus 
appearing before Hebrew scholars at the age of 12, followed by an 18-year silence in which Jesus' activities are unaccounted for. And then, suddenly, at about the age of 30, Jesus reemerged and launched his short and tumultuous religious career. Where did he go and what had he done during all those unknown years? It seems like Jesus was being intensively trained for his future religious role. According to William Bramley, it was common for Essene boys to enter an Essene monastery at about the age of five and begin their educations. This will account for Jesus' sudden disappearance from history at that age. Some researchers believe that Jesus was educated in the Essene community above Haifa by the Mediterranean Sea. At the age of 12, he made a trip to Jerusalem in preparation for his bar mitzvah the following year. It was during that trip that Jesus had a debate with the Hebrew scholars. Jesus then vanished from history again. Now where did he go? According to a Russian traveler, Nicholas Notovich, in 1887, he discovered The Legend of Isa, a very old Buddhist documentary purportedly discovered in the Hemi Monastery of India. Notovich published his translation of the Buddhist legend in 1890 in his book, The Unknown Life of Jesus. According to the legend of Isa, who was a remarkable young man, he departed for Asia at the age of 13. Isa studied under several religious masters of the East, did some preaching of his own, and returned to Palestine 16 years later at the age of 29. The parallels between the lives of Isa and Jesus have led many to believe that Isa was, in fact, Jesus. It goes deeper, too. If Jesus was an Essene, and he went to Asia under Essene sponsorship, and if the Essenes indeed followed an Aryan tradition, then that means Jesus most likely went to study under the Aryan Brahmins of India. And according to the legend of Isa, that's what he did. There's a little passage right here from the legend of Isa itself. It says, In his 14th year, young Isa, the blessed one, came this side of the Sindh and settled among the Aryans. And they loved Jesus or Isa, these Aryans, and they taught him all types of things to read and understand the Vedas and to teach and expound sacred Hindu scriptures. But this reception turned sour real quick because Jesus insisted upon associating with the lower castes because they have a strict caste system. And that led to friction between the young Jesus and his Brahmin hosts. According to the legend of Isa, here's another passage here. But the Brahmins and the Kshatriyas, members of the military caste, told him, that they were forbidden by the great Para Brahma, the Hindu god, to come near those who were created from his belly and his feet, the mythical origin of the lower castes, that the Vaisyas, the members of the merchant and agricultural caste, might only hear the recital of the Vedas, and this only on the festival days, and that the Sudras, one of the lower castes, were not only forbidden to attend the readings of the Vedas, but even to look on them, for they were condemned to perpetual servitude as slaves of the Brahmins, the Kshatriyas, and even the Vyasyas. But Isa, disregarding their words, remained with the Sudras, preaching against the Brahmins and the Kshatriyas. 
he declaimed strongly against man's arrogating to himself the authority to deprive his fellow beings of their human and spiritual rights. Verily, he said, God has made no difference between his children, who are all alike dear to him. Isa denied the divine inspiration of the Vedas and the Puranas, a class of sacred writings. So it seems to me like Jesus was being groomed from the start by the Brotherhood, and they wanted to use him for an agenda, and he didn't want no part of it. He wanted to teach the lowly people how to reach spiritual enlightenment and how to reach their full human potential. This angered the white priests and the warriors so much that they sent servants to murder Jesus. Warned of the danger, Jesus was able to bounce out of the holy city of the Jaggernaut by night, and he escaped into Buddhist country, where he stayed and learned the Pali language and studied sacred Buddhist writings. And after six years, he could perfectly expound the sacred Buddhist scrolls. After which, he returned to Palestine at around 29 or 30. And this is when he embarked on his public ministry. And he still decided to hang with the lowly people and was definitely pissing the custodians off on the regular. But the Essene order didn't want to give up because they had an agenda. They were pushing for Jesus to be the Messiah. And he pretty much told them to fuck off. And it led to him getting crucified. And of course, all his words getting altered, his true message getting altered and corrupted by the Brotherhood, just like everything else. And now he's going to come back as the Messiah, which he did not want to be. According to the Christians, they're saying that he's going to come back in the final battle in Revelations, the end times, Armageddon. Just like the Hebrews and the Jewish believe their Messiah is going to come lead them and they will inherit paradise. Which brings us right to the final book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation and the next chapter in the Gods of Eden, chapter 13, Apocalypse of John. If you look closely while reading the book of Revelation, you will see the hidden hand of the custodians. In the book, the author John has some crazy visions while exiled on an island. And it seems, according to William Bramley, like this man has been drugged. And while in that drug state, was shown pictures in a book by individuals who were wearing costumes and putting on a ceremony for the author's benefit. John's story begins while he's at prayer during the daylight hours, possibly performing a ritual, when suddenly a loud voice from behind him commanded him to write down everything he was about to see and hear and send the message to the seven Christian churches in Asia. When John turned around to see who was speaking to him, he saw a figure among seven golden candlesticks. And this is how John described this person. One who looked like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and wearing about the chest a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as flame of fire, and his feet were like fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice was as the sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, 
in his appearance was like the sun shines in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he laid his right hand upon me. That's from Revelation chapter 1, verse 13 through 17. This account by John sounds a lot like the previous encounters mentioned in the Old Testament, reminiscent of Ezekiel's angels. This next passage sounds a lot like John was invited onto some kind of craft. Take a listen. I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, which sounded like a trumpet talking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit. And look, a throne was set in heaven, and one creature sat on the throne, and the one who sat looked to me like a jasper and sardine stone. And there was a rainbow around the throne, looking like an emerald. And all around the throne were twenty-four seats, and upon the seats I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne came lightnings, and thunderings, and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne, and round about the throne, were four beasts full of eyes in front and back. Revelation chapter 4 Verse 1 through 6. That could definitely be interpreted as somebody going onto some kind of advanced tech, some kind of craft, or even into just some kind of building for initiation. The presence of seven candles and seven lamps indicates that a ritual had been prepared for the author. The ritual was replete with costumes, theatrics, and sound effects, all designed to deeply impress the message upon the author. Check this out. This is what happened when John was shown the first scroll. And I saw in the right hand of the one who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on the inside and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loosen the seals of it. And no man in heaven, nor in earth, nor from under the earth, was able to open the book, nor to look upon its contents. And I wept a great deal, because no man was found worthy to open and read the book, nor to look upon its contents. And one of the elders said to me, Weep not. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has succeeded to open the book and to loosen its seven seals. And I saw standing between the throne and the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, a lamb in the manner of having been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he came back and took the book out of the right hand of the one who sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and 24 elders fell before the lamb, each of them holding harps and golden containers full of odors which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the book and to open the seals of it, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood from every family, language, people, and nation, 
and have made us into kings and priests to God and shall reign on earth. And I saw and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the beasts and the elders, and they numbered 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and those that are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him that sits upon the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him that lived forever and ever. Revelation chapter 5 verses 1 through 14. And throughout this ceremony the elders as well as John act quite dramatically, falling to the ground, weeping with little provocation. William Bramley believes, along with other researchers, that what John is experiencing is identical to mystical ritual, especially of initiation onto the teachings of a secret society. The custodians prepared John's mind for this ritual by administering mind-altering drugs. And William Bramley references the mind control programs like MKUltra that were used by the United States and Russia and probably elsewhere to control minds and to insert thoughts and memories directly into people's minds and get them to behave how you want them to behave. Evidence of this is shown in chapter 10 of Revelation when the author was outside again, writing down and memorializing the latest revelations when an angel, quote unquote, flew down from the sky, holding something in its hand. And this is what the passage says. And the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, go and take the little scroll, which is open in the hand of the angel, which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it up, and it will make your belly bitter, but it will be in your mouth as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said to me, you must preach again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Revelation chapter 10 verses 8 through 11. This is very similar to the account by Ezekiel, which says, And when I looked, a hand of an angel was put before me, and a scroll was in it, and he spread it before me and it had writing inside and out. And there were written lamentations, and mourning, and woe. Additionally, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you are finding. Eat this scroll, and go to speak to the house of the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, make your belly eat and fill your bowels with this scroll that I give you. Then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, go, get yourself over to the house of Israel, and speak with my words to them. Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, and Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. There you have it, some evidence of these prophets being drugged, possibly. One more passage that we're going to read out of Revelation 
because William Bramley thinks that it shows that John was being showed pictures, illustrations, not visions. So here we go. This says, and I stood up upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads blasphemous names. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. And William Bramley says the fact that actual words, blasphemous names, were written upon the heads of this creature reveal that John was looking at an illustration with labels, much like an old-fashioned political cartoon. Although the author does not specifically say so, it is likely that many other visions, quote-unquote, on the scrolls were labeled in a similar fashion. So there you have it. That's what William Bramley thinks is going on in Revelation and how the custodians use these apocalyptic doctrines to manipulate different religions against one another. And so far, we showed how they use these prophets of the Old Testament to insert this apocalyptic doctrine into the Hebrew Jewish religion and how they use John to create the book of Revelation. Now, we are going to move on to Muhammad and the custodial's role in the creation of the Muslim religion and their apocalyptic doctrines and what they have to say about their Messiah and their Savior who's going to come and lead their people in the final battle, in the final judgment, and they will be rewarded with all of the riches in paradise that Allah promises. So like Jesus, not much is known about Muhammad in his everyday life. They think he was born around 570 AD. A lot of historians hypothesize that he was an orphan and that around the age of 25, he married into a wealthy family and he worked as a tradesman in her business for the next 15 years. But that is not entirely certain. But he really didn't have much going on for him other than he married this wealthy widow. But out of nowhere, all of a sudden, at the age of 40, Muhammad emerged as a religious prophet and the leader of a powerful new religious movement. And according to his own words, this religious mission was triggered by an apparition. The vision appeared to him outside a secluded cave that he would often visit to pray and contemplate. The apparition was a quote-unquote angel once again, and it was bearing a message for Muhammad to spread. But it was not just any angel, it was the angel Gabriel, one of the most important of the Christian angels. Muhammad described the meeting in these words, The Quran is no other than a revelation revealed to him. One terrible in power taught it to him, endued with wisdom. With even balance stood he in the highest part of the horizon. Then he came nearer and approached and was at a distance of two bows or even closer. And he revealed to his servant what he revealed. The Quran repeats the story that this is the word of an illustrious messenger, endued with power, having influence with the Lord of the throne, obeyed there by angels, faithful to his trust. And your compatriot is not one possessed by jinn, for he saw him in the clear horizon. Once again, like the previous prophets of the Old and New Testament, William Bramley believes that Muhammad was either semi-conscious or in a trance when this angel Gabriel ordered him to recite and record the message. When Muhammad awoke, it seemed to him that the angel's words were inscribed upon his heart. And that is further evidence that these custodians use some kind of psychedelic mind-altering drugs to implant these ideas into the minds of these prophets. And this led Muhammad to create this new religion called Islam, 
which means surrender, and followers must surrender to God. Members of Islam are called Muslims, which comes from the word Muslim, one who submits. The supreme being of the Islam faith is named Allah, who is said by Muhammad to be the same God as the Jewish and Christian Jehovah or Yahweh. And two key themes of the Quran are its day of judgment prophecy and its fire and brimstone depiction of hell. Muhammad honored Moses and Jesus as Allah's two previous messengers and proclaimed Islam to be the third and final revelation from God. Because of this, it was therefore the duty of all Jews and Christians to convert to Islam. Hebrews and Christians tended to be less than cooperative with Muhammad's demand because, as you heard earlier, they were warned of false prophets in their own apocalyptic writings, and the result of this clash has been some of the bloodiest fighting in world history. And that is exactly what the custodians want. It is playing out exactly how they want it to. Right up to this very day, right now, as we speak, they are loving this. They love the manufactured holy wars. And once Muhammad got going, he embarked on a program of conquest to make it clear which religion was the right choice. He used the tactics of a generalissimo, the divinely inspired. Muhammad raised an army and set off to convert unfaithful ones, the infidels, into his faith. Muhammad's apocalyptic army cut a wide bloody swath through most of the Middle East, including important Christian centers. The militant Muslim empire eventually stretched as far as east as India, where elements of Islam were incorporated into the Hindu religion. Untold lives were lost during the Islamic conquest because the Islamic armies were prone to commit fearsome genocides as part of their mission to bring utopia to mankind. This led to Christians looking at Muslims as nothing more than savage heathens or non-believers, and this set up an inevitable conflict into which millions of people would be dragged. Almost 500 years after the death of Muhammad, the Christian world launched a coordinated military effort to force the Muslims out of the Holy Land, and that is known as the Crusades. The hate for the Muslims from the Christians was not a natural one, of course. The custodians had their hands on both sides, and it has been going on ever since. They have been fighting for these holy lands. The Muslims will come conquer. The Christians come back and conquer, back and forth, to and fro, all the live long day. And it's continuing on and on with brotherhood influence. So I think that's where we're going to leave this episode because it goes on about the back and forth battles. There's lots of data. There's lots of information about who was working on both sides. The only thing I wish it had is a little bit more information about Muhammad. Like it had all these juicy tidbits about Jesus and Yahweh and Jehovah. But everything about Muhammad was pretty much straightforward. Maybe there isn't, like he said, there isn't much known about him. But I bet there's some awesome theories out there about his life and about who he really was and how he came about this information. I don't know. Maybe just like Jesus. Maybe I got to dive into that on my own. But you can see where William Bramley is getting at in all of the similarities in the way that these angels appear to these prophets in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and to Muhammad in the Quran. All three of these Abrahamic religions are definitely on a collision course. It's about to pop off. Everybody thinks they are God's chosen people and they are going to get what they are promised when Armageddon comes, the end of days, revelation. Hey, I believe in a God, a most high, but I don't think that God wants us to kill one another. 
I think there's knowledge and wisdom encoded in all of these religious documents, and I think they are valuable, but very dangerous at the same time when interpreted a certain way. The truth is sprinkled in all of this deception, and that's the messed up part. And you have to kind of read between the lines and do a lot of deep diving and also look within yourself and feel what resonates with you, what vibrates with you. And if one of these angels ever shows up, don't eat the motherfucking scroll. Tell them I'm all set. I like to keep my mind clear and I like to think about things on my own. I don't need you inserting things into my brain. So I hope you really enjoyed exploring these ideas with me, going along with me on this journey. And I thought it would be good to look at the gods of Eden and take what he thinks about the three Abrahamic religions and the custodian influence in those and how they have been pitted against each other from the beginning. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review a rating, a star on whatever platform you listen to this podcast. Share it with your friends, your family, anybody out there that will listen to you. Reach out. Let me know what you think. Email me, the Brave New World Order Podcast at gmail.com. Follow me on X slash Twitter at Brave NWO Podcast. And also head over to Spotify and answer the Q&A. I love to hear what you think about this episode or the podcast in general or anything that's on your mind. Reach out, say what's up. And if you want to help support the show, there are a couple links in the show notes. I really appreciate all the help and everybody out there that's sharing the show and leaves a review. It really helps out answering those questions on Spotify too. I think that it all helps boost the show. I like it anyway, regardless. I got to say, everybody who's reached out since I started this podcast has been really awesome. You guys are great, and you will be hearing from me soon. In the meantime, stay positive, question everything, think for yourselves. Much love. Peace.